In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. In today's Gospel, St. Matthew tells us about a Canaanite mother. Her daughter was sick, oppressed by a demon, Matthew writes, which could mean she was actually suffering from some kind of demonic activity. It could mean something like epilepsy or seizures. The Greek term for that literally means moonstruck. And they thought it had to do with all sorts of divine and semi-divine or demonic things. But whatever was wrong with this girl, it was clearly something that was awful, and her mother was desperate for her to be healed. I expect she had exhausted every one of her options, that she'd been to doctors and witch doctors and priests and temples. In Sidon, there was a temple dedicated to the Phoenician god Eshmun, a god of healing. Interestingly enough, in light of the exchange that takes place between this woman and Jesus and the topic of dogs coming up, modern archaeologists at least some think that dogs had a sacred place in the ceremonial and ritual of Eshmu. I expect she went to that temple and sought out the priests there. It was devoted to healing, after all. That would have been normal. And not to mention the expected thing for her to do as a Canaanite, a Phoenician. And I expect when she went to the temple, her hopes were high. Surely this God of healing could do something for her daughter. But nothing. And the seizures or whatever it was continued. And this mother grieved for her daughter. I think as parents, most of us can identify on some level with this mother's desperation for her child. When our children are sick, we grieve for them, we pray for them, we want them to get better, and it's frustrating and tiring and discouraging when no matter what we do, no matter who we take them to, no one seems to to be able to do anything. Sometimes we may even feel as though God has let us down. Or we heap guilt up on ourselves, thinking that, Maybe it's our faith that's lacking. I expect, in some way, that's, that's how this woman felt. The doctors couldn't do anything. The priests couldn't do anything. She prayed, and her gods were silent. I expect she was utterly discouraged. And then one day, she hears about a Jewish rabbi traveling through the neighborhood. Jesus. And she's heard of him time and time again these last couple of years. Maybe she knew a few Jewish people who lived in the region, and she'd heard them talking about Jesus. How he'd been traveling around Galilee, restoring sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf and healing the sick, and most importantly, casting out demons. Jewish people she knew said he was the Messiah a prophet, maybe somehow even the God of Israel himself. People called him the son of David, the king who would come and one day sort out all of Israel's problems. Living in close proximity to Jews, I expect she knew at least a bit of their story. 
She knew a little bit about their God. And as far as she could tell, he wasn't much better than her gods. His people hadn't heard him speak in hundreds of years. He didn't seem to care about his people any more than her gods cared about her. I mean, after all, Jew and Phoenician, Canaanite, Syrian, whatever, all alike, they were living under the boot of Rome. Their gods didn't seem to care. But now, it looked like the God of Israel was waking up. Now he was speaking and acting through this son of David, this this Messiah, this Jesus man. The God of Israel had, so the Jews claimed, he had made promises to his people through the prophets a thousand years ago. Nothing had ever come of them. And so like everybody else, if the chance came up or the opportunity came up, she mocked these Jews, where's your God? You think you're so special. You're just like us. The Jewish God was no better than the Canaanite gods. Those Jews have no reason to be so uppity, she would have thought. But now, those old prophecies were suddenly being fulfilled. If the rumors about Jesus were true, something was happening. Something she couldn't say about her own gods. And so she followed the talk and she followed the rumors until she found this Jesus in the countryside. If her gods wouldn't help her, maybe the God of Israel would. So look at Matthew chapter 15, beginning at verse 21. Look at our gospel lesson again. He writes, Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon, just outside the boundaries of Israel. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So I expect she was excited when she actually found him. The rumors that he was nearby were true. Jesus and his disciples maybe had a little camp set up in the country away from everybody. I mean, that made perfect sense. Jews and Gentiles weren't supposed to and usually didn't mix. And as she approaches from a distance, she sees Jesus is sitting there teaching his disciples, talking to them about something. Probably wasn't the most polite thing to do to interrupt, but she didn't care. Her need was urgent. She calls out to get his attention. His disciples look, but it was like he hadn't heard her. Jesus just kept on with his teaching. So she called out again, and she called out again. She knew he heard her, but he ignored her. Finally, she was right there, and she cried out. Matthew puts special stress on the urgency of her cries. She cries out, O Lord, have mercy on me. Son of David, deliver my daughter. Now, she knew that as a Canaanite, as a Gentile... She didn't belong there any more than a Jew belonged in the temple of Eshmun in Sidon. If he really was the Messiah of the God of Israel, if he really was the son of David, this Jewish king, she knew that he had no more obligation to her than her gods had to the Jewish people. But she was desperate. Her gods were silent. Her gods were impotent to help her. So she's thinking, what reason do I have to be loyal to my gods? 
So she cries out to this man she's heard has come from the God of Israel. But Matthew says he did not answer her a word. It's actually Jesus' disciples who acknowledge her presence. And as she expected, they're annoyed. I mean, she should know better. A Gentile and a woman. She had no business bothering them. So Matthew says his disciples came to him and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. I mean, they didn't care about her either. They were only interested in hearing Jesus. Come on, Jesus. What's with this annoying woman? Maybe just give her what she wants so she'll go away and leave us alone. Because we just want to hear what you have to say, Jesus. We want to we hear your teaching. So send her away. There's, there's another whole sermon right there, isn't there? <laughs> she didn't want to hear that. But I doubt she was surprised. But she expected, I think, more of Jesus after all the things she'd heard. She'd even heard how he healed the child or the servant, depending on whom you heard it from, that he healed the child or the servant of a Roman centurion. And women were coming to him all the time. Surely Jesus would rebuke his disciples and have compassion on her. But that's how not, not how Matthew says Jesus responded. He finally does speak, but even then he doesn't address her. He talks to his friends. Look at verse 24. Matthew says, Jesus answered, not her, he answers his disciples. They've said, send her away, give her what she wants so she'll just go. And he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Ouch. We might say, that doesn't really sound like Jesus, right? Did Jesus really start out by ignoring her? And then when he, he was forced to talk to her, did he really say, no, I'm not going to heal your daughter because you're a dog? My blessings don't belong to you. You have no right to them. He did. There's a reason why this is often said to be one of the hard sayings of the New Testament. And there is a good explanation, and I'll get to it in a bit. But first, Matthew tells us just how persistent she was. Jesus says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. I think maybe this is when Jesus finally gave her a bit of a smile. He wasn't really a jerk. There was a reason why he acted the way he did and said what he said. I mean, you might say he was testing her, but I think more importantly, you could say that this was another one of, of his acted-out prophecies that said more than words ever could about the nature of his ministry and just who he was as the Lord's Messiah. He took every opportunity to communicate that. He wasn't just going around doing magic tricks or giving people whatever they wanted. Everything he did was about revealing himself and his mission and what God expected of him and of his people. So Jesus, again, I think, finally smiled at her, and Matthew says, he answered her. Now he talks directly to her. O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. 
and her daughter was healed instantly. So what's going on here? Some people say that Jesus, at this point, was just tired and overwhelmed with the scope of his ministry. He'd been polite and accommodating with that centurion back in Capernaum. He was in one of our Gospels a few weeks ago. And it's very interesting how Matthew, when he tells these two stories about this woman and about the centurion, he tells them in parallel, almost exactly the same way with almost exactly the same words and phrasing. They're very similar stories. But why was Jesus so accommodating and nice to the to the centurion, people say, well, back then Jesus was fresh and he was enthusiastic and he just started out, but now two years have gone by and he's realized just how hard and hopeless his whole ministry is going to be. The harvest was ripe, but the laborers are few. He'd never make it to everyone in Israel in the time that he had. So this time he ignored the woman. His mission was Israel and Israel alone. He'd figured that out. And I think maybe that's partly right. But I think there's a better explanation. And of course, these days, the explanation you'll hear from some folks is Jesus was a racist. Because, of course, everything and everybody's a racist now. But that's not the answer. No, Matthew wrote his gospel to a Jewish audience. And a big part of his purpose was to show them that Jesus really was their Messiah. And that he had come in fulfillment of God's prophecies to them. And in doing that, Matthew reminds us that Jesus didn't just parachute into history to save humanity and the world at any old random time in any old random place. There has been a strong tendency in the church to abstract Jesus' ministry, to separate theology from story, doctrine from history. Now, he is the Savior of the world, after all. But then we start thinking that if he'd wanted to, he could have just come at any time and any place and and to any people to do his saving work. But in doing that, we forget that, no, he came and he had to come where and when he did because Jesus himself is part of, he's the culmination of, but he's part of a bigger story. And this is why I say that this was, for lack of a better term, sort of an acted out prophecy. I expect that Jesus fully planned to help this woman from the start. But what he says and does stresses a point that will be vital to his own people and that ultimately will be vital as the gospel goes out from Judea, from the Jews, to the whole world. That point is that Jesus reveals, that he puts on display, that he proves the faithfulness of the God of Israel the worthiness of the God of Israel, of the faith and praise of the nations. And Jesus does that by first ignoring this Gentile woman, and then he refuses her request, and then he calls her a dog. But maybe the most remarkable thing, and and it highlights that he really was a prophet, is that his refusal of her request ends up prompting her to speak that vital truth when she says, but Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Take note. The dogs don't eat until the master's children have eaten. 
In their world, they didn't have a dog dish in the corner of the kitchen, and before the family sat down for dinner, they opened a can of Alpo and put it in the dish. Dogs were kept to keep the house clean. So if the dog wasn't satisfied eating mice or chasing off burglars and getting a bite of them on the way, dogs sat under the table and waited for the crumbs to fall. That's how they ate. The dogs didn't eat until the master's children had. And brothers and sisters, just so with the gospel. The Gentiles can't eat until the children of Israel have first been fed. The Lord must fulfill his promises to his people before those gospel crumbs can fall to the Gentiles. Now the amazing thing, and what this Canaanite woman probably didn't realize at the time, was that those crumbs that fell under the table would in time become a great feast for the nations. But what has drawn the nations to the table in the first place was seeing the faithfulness of the Lord to feed his own children. Just as the household dogs only came to the table because they saw their master feeding his children and they hoped to eat some of what was dropped. This is what we too often forget. For God so loved the world, we say. Jesus said that. But we've forgotten the bigger story of which that is just a part. Not this short story, not even just the story of the Gospels, but we forget the big story, the story of Israel, the story of the people of God that runs from Genesis to Revelation. We tend to lift Jesus out of this context, this history, and out of the story of Israel, out of his first century context, and that means lifting him out of the story of salvation lifting him out of Genesis to Revelation story. What our gospel today shows us is Jesus right in the middle of that story. If we take him out, the story doesn't make any sense. So it's true what Jesus says to the woman here. He did not come to the Gentiles. He didn't. I mean, yes, there were a few Gentiles who came to him, but Jesus did not come to the Gentiles. Jesus came to Israel. Jesus is Israel's Messiah. But again, we protest, but but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus said it. Yes, he did. Jesus brings salvation for everyone. But we need first to understand that he does so as Israel's Messiah. Jesus stresses it right here. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And in saying that, he's not saying that he came to some of the house of Israel who were lost, but that he came to Israel because Israel, essentially the whole people, was lost. They were sheep without a shepherd. Jesus came to bring the kingdom that had been promised to God's people through Abraham and through David, and he did it to fulfill the Lord's promises to show the Lord's faithfulness. There were aspects of that kingdom that were new and different, yes, but Jesus' kingdom is built firmly and immovably on the covenant and the promises the Lord had made with Israel down from the ages from Abraham's time. He'd called Israel to be his people. He'd promised to be their God. He'd rescued Israel and set her apart so that he might show her his blessings and give her his word. And he did it all so that... Remember, 
so that she could then share that blessing and share that word so that she could be a light to the Gentile nations. God reveals himself through his people so that the world would see God in the midst of his people and be moved to come and give him glory at the amazing thing that they saw there. God fed his children and fully expected crumbs to fall from the table. Remember that Jesus stressed in the Sermon on the Mount that he had come not to abolish the law, not to abolish anything God had promised or covenanted or established with Israel, but to fulfill it. Jesus didn't come to do away with Israel. Many Christians down through history have said that because of Israel's faithlessness, God cast her aside to start over with the Gentiles in the church. Absolutely not. And then on the other extreme, you've got folks who think Jesus Jesus coming put Israel on hold while the Lord saves the Gentiles and the rest of the world and builds a church. Some even like to say that Jesus is not Israel's Messiah. That's heresy, by the way. Eventually, they say God will be finished with the Gentiles. The church will be completed and then raptured out of the world. And then the Lord will pick up where he left off with Israel. That's wrong, too. Jesus didn't come to abolish the idea of God electing a special people, nor did he come to divide the people of God with Israel on the one hand and the church on the other. From day one with Abraham, God had made clear that his restoration of the world, his restoration of humanity, was going to happen through Israel. Israel may have made a lot of mistakes, fallen into idolatry, failed to live the law, failed to be a light to the nations, but the Lord didn't give up. The church isn't his plan B implemented when Israel, plan A, failed. The Gentiles did and still do need deliverance from sin and death just as much as Israel ever did. But again, God's plan was always to work through this people, Israel, and so the ministry of the Messiah had first to be for them. Israel had misinterpreted the message that she'd been given long before. Some people in Israel had even abandoned it almost almost entirely. And so if Israel was going to be the Lord's means of bringing life to the world, Jesus had first to call her back to the Lord. Jesus had to make a faithful Israel. Not to do so would be for Jesus to deny the Lord's promises and to make a liar of him. And if the Lord was unfaithful to the promise he'd made to his own people, What reason would the Gentiles ever have to take notice of him? He'd be no different than their own gods. He'd be no different from Zeus or Isis or Odin or Vishnu or the Great Spirit. In fact, what we see Jesus doing, and especially so in the middle portion of the Gospels between his birth and his death and his resurrection, what we see him doing is taking on the role of Israel himself. And Daniel, the son of man character, represented the people of God. But in Jesus' ministry, we see the son of man again. But now he's taking that role on, embodying it himself. In his birth and in his ministry, we see him taking on the role of that great Davidic king, the son of David. And as his ministry unfolds into rejection and suffering and death, we see him taking on the role of Isaiah's suffering servant. 
Okay, these are all roles that the prophets ascribed to the people of Israel. But one by one, Jesus takes each of them up himself. Brothers and sisters, understand this important point. Jesus is Israel. He embodies her inheritance. He embodies her mission. Where Israel had failed to be faithful, Jesus is faithful without fail. Even as he dies, he faces the very same death that the Jewish revolutionaries would face a generation later, and for the very same reason. He challenged Rome as king of the Jews. So Jesus came as the embodiment of Israel, of the people of God. And he came as Israel to show God's people a new way of being Israel. A new way in which the people would fulfill everything the Lord had promised and everything the Lord had ever called Israel to be. So this is why Jesus came preaching repentance. The people had to to let go of their misconceptions of what it meant to be God's people. Whether that was the hope of some for violent revolution or the hope of others that, you know, if we're just obedient enough and enough of us are obedient enough, then the Lord will finally come and send his Messiah and he'll rain down fire and brimstone on the Gentiles and bring his kingdom. As the promises were fulfilled in Jesus, it did not nullify God's plan to bring life to the world through Israel. What it did was reorient Israel around Jesus himself. It created a new Israel, not now based on blood and genealogy, not based on circumcision or Sabbath-keeping, but on faith, and specifically faith in Jesus the Messiah. Israel had been born as a people when they followed the Lord in faith through the waters of the Red Sea and were rescued from Egypt. In Jesus, Israel is born again, But this new Israel is born of all those who follow Jesus in faith through the waters of baptism. Jesus offers a choice. As he fulfilled the covenant, uh, as he fulfilled the covenant, those who repented and reoriented their lives in and around him, those who found their lives in him, became part of that new way of being the people of God, centered in Jesus. But Jesus warned that those who reject him, those who refused him, they'd be cut off. And when he said that, he was speaking to the biological children of Abraham. The axe was set to the root of the tree. The branches that refused to bear good fruit would be cut off. Jerusalem, embodying and representing faithless Israel, Jerusalem would be and was judged, torn stone from stone, and scattered. Again, even in judgment, the Lord revealing his faithfulness to his promises. But through Jesus, Israel would continue in a new way, with the law no longer written on those big stone tablets, but instead written on the hearts of the people. With the Spirit of God no longer in a stone temple on a mountain behind a curtain they could never pass, but actually living inside of them, making them the temple themselves. And as the Spirit changed and renewed and brought life, the law of love now written on their hearts, this new Israel would not only fulfill the Lord's promises through the prophets, but it would also finally fulfill the Lord's mission that he'd given his people all the way back to Abraham, reaching out to the nations and bringing life to the world. So yes, 
Jesus came to bring life to the world, to Jew and Gentile alike. But to fulfill the Lord's plan, he brought this life first by bringing it to the old Israel, to Abraham's children. To do anything else would have been to bypass his plan and to expose himself as a liar. And if he'd done that, the Lord would be no better than the pagan gods. So this faithfulness of God to his promises, this is what we talk about, the righteousness of God. That's what we mean. It's the theme of St. Paul's epistle to the Romans. Through that letter, Paul explains how God has been faithful to and how he has fulfilled his covenant promises to Israel. And at the end, in Romans 15, Paul sums it all up when he writes, For I tell you that Christ, the Messiah, became a servant to the circumcised. And that means Israel, Abraham's biological children. He became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Why? In order that the Gentiles who were watching might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Jesus fulfilled God's promises to his people so that when the story of Israel and and the, the faithfulness of God to her, especially his faithfulness displayed in Jesus, so that when that was proclaimed to the Gentiles, they would, we would, fall before God in worship of his great mercy. This is the story the first Jewish Christians proclaimed to the Gentiles. This story of the faithfulness of God was the story St. Paul proclaimed as he traveled around the Roman Empire. It's the story ultimately proved true at the cross, in the empty tomb, and in the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost. It's the story that reveals the faithfulness of the God of Israel. It's a story that reveals the gods of this world to be cheap and impotent imitations of the one true God It's the story that reveals all the kings of the earth to be but cheap imitations of Jesus, the one true Lord. And as the Gentiles heard this story, as they saw their gods and kings exposed, they put their faith in Jesus. They were baptized into his body. And they found life in him. And they became the true embodiment of Israel and the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. As they found their life in Jesus, the Gentiles were grafted into this new Israel. It's sometimes a contentious point today in some circles. But the story we've inherited, that story that runs from Genesis to Revelation, makes it clear that Israel is the church, and the church is Israel, and Jesus stands at the center point the bridge between them. The Jewish root that was Israel, even as it was cut down for failing to bear fruit, it gave birth to Jesus the Messiah, who is now the trunk of a tree, the branches of which have gone out to the entire world. Anyone who may, Jew or Gentile alike, can take part in the life of Jesus and be grafted into that tree. All any of us needs to do is take hold of him in faith, trusting that in his death he has forgiven our sins and in his resurrection he's given us life. Both literally and metaphorically, Jesus provides the blood to make us Israel. 
All we need to bring to him is faith. Faith like we see in the Canaanite woman in the gospel today. I mean, how much did she really know about Israel and Israel's God and Israel's Messiah? Probably very, very little. I suspect she had no idea just how profound her response to Jesus about the crumbs falling to the dogs was, or just how much it revealed about Israel's calling, and through that, Jesus' calling. I suspect it was all providence that brought these things together. And we don't know what happened to her after her daughter was healed and she went home. But I do have to think that when the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection spread from Judea out across Palestine, everything about that conversation she'd had with Jesus suddenly came into razor-sharp focus. And that she believed, not just in a traveling miracle worker or a traveling prophet, but in Jesus, the Messiah, who brought life to the world and who changed everything because the God of Israel so loved everyone. She believed because in Jesus she had met the one true God and he exposed as false every God she'd ever believed in. She saw them then as a poor mockery of the God who was faithful. And in that, she was no longer a dog. She began by eating the crumbs, but was, I expect, suddenly surprised to find herself feasting at the Lord's table a beloved daughter of the king, and now part of the great story herself. And just so with each of us, brothers and sisters, we have heard the good news about Jesus. The cross and the empty tomb have shown us the faithfulness of God, and we have believed. He welcomes us to his table this morning. We who once were not worthy so much as to gather the crumbs that his children dropped, We who were once dogs, he now invites us to feast as his children. Here at the table, we see the faithfulness of the God of Israel revealed in Jesus. Here we see that he and he alone is worthy of our glory and praise. Here we're reminded, if we've been tempted to flirt with the false gods and false kings and false ideologies and systems of the world, Here at the table, we're reminded again to set those false gods and kings aside. As the gospel once again shows us that only God is worthy of our praise and our faith. And here again, we are exhorted to go out and to proclaim the cross and the lordship of Jesus. The good news to the world so that one day the knowledge of his glory will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Here we are reminded of the faithfulness of God. Here we come to give him praise. And from here he sends us out to make him known. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of faith by which we have been grafted into your son, Jesus, and in him grafted into your people, Israel. We were stones, but by the gift of faith you have made us children of Abraham. We were dead wood, but by faith you have grafted us into the living vine and caused us to bear fruit. We were mangy, unclean dogs, but now you have made us your sons and daughters. Strengthen that gift of faith in us, we ask, 
that as we live in hope of your future, we would live in such a way, bearing the fruit of the Spirit and using the gifts you've given us to proclaim your glory. Strengthen our faith and enrich our ministry that we might be the blessing to the nations you have called us to be, holding high the light of Christ and proclaiming boldly that Jesus is Lord. Amen.